Matthew chapter 23, beginning in verse 13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. Therefore, you will receive greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel land and sea to win one proselyte. And when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you yourselves Woe to you blind guides who say, whoever swears by the temple, it's nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he's obliged to perform it. Fools and blind. For which is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? And Whoever swears by the altar, it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gift on, on it, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind. For which is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift? Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and by all things on it. He who swears by the temple swears by it, and by him who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by the throne of God, and by him who sits in it. In the opening verses of, of chapter 23, Jesus publicly condemns the scribes and the Pharisees in verses 1 through 12. Now, Jesus will personally condemn the scribes and the Pharisees in verses 13 through 36. In the previous verses, Jesus exposes their corrupt character. And now he will condemn the Pharisees in a, in a series of denunciations or judgments or curses. These are called woes or judgments. And we're going to begin our study by examining the first three judgments. And then in our next visit, we're going to look at the final four woes or judgments. Now, for those of you who are astute, you're going to count eight. And you're going to wonder, why does Gino keep calling them seven? Because verse 14 is a suspect verse as far as this narrative goes, but it clearly is real and it is contained in the Bible. So the way I'm looking at it is the seven woes. Now you're going to remember when Jesus condemned the Pharisees, he accused them of failing to practice what they preach in verses 1 through 7, of placing heavy burdens upon the people and refusing to lighten their load by dividing the sorrow or sharing the load or carrying the load themselves in verse 4, doing everything for show in verses 5 through 7, demanding positions of prominence in verse 6, and then Jesus warns them about exalting themselves that they're going to experience unwelcome humbling. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted in verses 8 through 12. So now Jesus is going to deliver a series of scathing ultimatums, judgments on the religious hypocrites. The first judgment 
is preventing people from entering the kingdom of God. And they themselves refusing entrance in verse 13. The second judgment is converting people away from God in order to be like themselves in verse 15. The third judgment is blindly leading people in man-made traditions instead of honoring God's word in verses 16 through 22. The fourth judgment is going to be participating in all of the religious details of wanting to get the minutiae and the details right, all the while ignoring the most important things, justice, mercy, faith in verses 23 and 24. The fifth judgment is keeping up appearances, making sure that everything looks right on the outside, but on the inside your inner world is corrupt and falling apart. That's in verses 27 and 28 or actually verses 25 and 26, the sixth judgment is acting spiritual, all the while covering up personal sin in verses 27 and 28. The seventh judgment is pretending. It's the pretending to have learned from all of the past experiences, but your present circumstances betrays the fact that you haven't learned anything at all. And so Jesus is going to condemn the scribes and Pharisees and by extension, condemn and curse all people who preach a false gospel, who promote false doctrine. The king condemns false leaders and then exposes their false agenda. Number one, false leaders exclude people from the kingdom of heaven. Number two, false teachers preach a false faith. They distort and substitute the true faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Number three, false leaders pervert the truth. And how do they pervert the truth? By promoting lies. Number four, false teachers twist, pervert, torture the text. They switch God's word for their own man-made priorities. And number five, false teachers exercise extortion. And number six, false teachers are committed to self-indulgence, sinfully contaminating everyone around them. And number seven, false teachers and leaders presume to be superior to everyone. And in their presumption, Not only are they willing to take advantage of you, not only are they willing to hurt you, sometimes they're willing to kill you if you don't subscribe to their brand of external and hypocritical religion. And so Jesus curses counterfeit leaders. The Pharisees hate him. And they most certainly are going to hate him even more. It's because Jesus reveals the human condition. He reveals what's going on inside of the heart. Jesus teaches spiritual life based on biblical principles. The Pharisees and the religious leaders teach spiritual life based on religion, based on rules, based on regulations, and then keeping up 
the appearances. The religious leaders measure a man or a woman's relationship with God based on activity and conformity or participation in the religion. Jesus teaches honesty, humility, simplicity, holiness, sacrificial service. The religious leaders used people and were proud. Jesus ministers to people and is humble. The religious leaders are polluted. Jesus is pure. So look at the failure in refusing to enter the kingdom and refusing others. In verses 13 and 14, he begins by saying, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Jesus is going to repeat two words over and over again as he registers his dissatisfaction with the religious leaders. He's going to use the word woe and he's going to use the word hypocrite. The word woe is what's called onomatopoeia. In the Greek language, it's called, it, it, the, the word is oh. Like the English word ouch or cuckoo or Boom! The, the word is a sound that communicates a sentiment. Woe was a cry of anguish. It was a cry of pain. The word in the Greek Septuagint was used to express grief, sorrow, despair. But it was also used to express profound dissatisfaction. Sometimes even the thought of losing your own life. One Bible teacher says, quote, in the New Testament, it's used to speak of sorrow and judgment. Carrying the mingled ideas of both punishment and pity. Cursing and compassion, and I think that that's exactly right. It's different from our culture and society. Those of you who remember the 80s and you remember Bill and Ted's excellent adventure and, and Ted would always go, whoa. When he's expressing the term, whoa, he actually means it in the terms of like incredulity or whoa, I can't believe this is happening. And you know, it's adopted by Southern California culture. But that isn't the biblical meaning. Jesus is not saying, I condemn you or I damn you. But rather, again, as one Bible commentator has pointed out, quote, when God utters woe against evil men, he sets divine judgment in motion, unquote. And so there's still opportunity to repent, to turn, to change. The word hypocrite is familiar to the regular reader of the New Testament. The word means to answer or to reply. But it is an answer or a reply of a rehearsed, pre-prepared speech like the fictional dialogue of people acting or performing. It was later used in Greek culture to describe language or dialogue that was fabricated on the stage. And so it came to mean a person wearing a mask or a person acting. 
when Jesus uses the term, I think what he means is a godless pretender. What are the basic credentials of the hypocrite? Deceit in verse 18. Formalism in verse 23. Appearances in verses 25 through 28. So to the religious hypocrite, religion is all about appearance, envy, arrogance, pride. It's what's going on on the outside and neglecting all the while what's going on in the inside. Hamlet in Act 1, Scene 5, when the ghost of his departed father shows up about his death, we have Hamlet saying that one may smile and smile and be a villain. This is exactly right. He's pointing out that even when you're watching movies or TV and you're watching a story and you're trying to figure out who's the good guy and who's the bad guy, is it possible that the bad guy pretends to be a good guy? Smiling, smiling, leaving you with the appearance that everything is okay when in fact everything is wrong. The religious hypocrite restricts true entrance into the kingdom of heaven. In Matthew 5, 3, Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He's describing someone who's impoverished eternally, humble, having nothing to offer God except his own sin. So the first evil of false religion that Jesus points out is that it sentences people to hell. And I know those are hard words. And there are people who are listening right at at this moment who are asking the question, how can you be sure? How can you be sure? It's because Jesus says so. Don't make the mistake of thinking this is Gino making that comment. Especially for the person who says, I don't believe there is a hell. And I I believe everybody is going to heaven. I, I accept that that's what you believe, but that's not what Jesus believes. And that should cause you deep concern. Jesus doesn't believe that everyone is going to heaven. J. Vernon McGee famously said on one of his radio broadcasts, may I say, my friends, there's only one thing worse than going to hell. He said, it's holding the hand of your child. There is one thing worse than going to hell. It's leading other people to hell. It's leading them away from the truth. That's what Jesus is in fact condemning. Every false religion, every false cult, every false philosophy that rejects Jesus as the Savior, that rejects the cross, rejects his sacrifice, rejects grace, is really sentencing people to hell. The person might say, but what about the good they do? What about all of the good that people do? Feeding the poor, housing the homeless, providing clean, fresh drinking water, education, sanitation, medication. What if their religious, what if their religion raises the moral climate? What if it brings family together? What if it promotes peace? 
If your religion doesn't remove the stain of sin on your soul, if it doesn't remove it from the human heart, if it doesn't transform the heart and then make the heart acceptable on God's terms, then what good is it? This is the New Testament message that Jesus is willing to do just that by grace through faith. He is willing to become the substitute for your sin and the perfect measure and the satisfying solution to the problem of sin. If your religion doesn't remove sin, if it doesn't transform your heart, if it doesn't make you acceptable to God, if it doesn't reconcile you to God, if it doesn't keep you out of hell, what good is it? False religions promise heaven and then give its people hell. They promise freedom, but they give them slavery. They promise to speak for God, but they ultimately speak for Satan. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus blesses those who are spiritually bankrupt, who have nothing to offer God but their sin. The poor in spirit enter the kingdom of heaven. The proud in spirit, those who say, I have exactly what I need. I don't need Jesus. I don't need grace. I don't need his sacrifice on the cross. They're kept out. Jesus characterized the proud in spirit. When he spoke of the religious leader who was praying next to a person and he said, thank God I am a man and not a woman. Thank God I'm a Jew and not a Gentile. Thank God I'm righteous and not a sinner like this person next to me. And the man next to him was praying, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said, one went away justified and the other unjustified. Remember, the Pharisee claimed, he claimed to be a spokesperson for God. The Pharisees pretend citizenship in a kingdom, but they are not a part of that kingdom. In their bloated pride and arrogance, they claim to be the gatekeepers of heaven, but wind up shutting the door. So much so, Jesus said, I'm the door. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Jesus said, you neither go in yourselves. Neither do you allow those who are entering to go in. Jesus believed that some people are not going to heaven. And so when the next person says to you, I don't believe, the God I believe in would never send a person to hell. You need to be able to say to them, I understand and respect your belief. But your belief wasn't shared by Jesus. He didn't believe that even for a minute. He believed that false teachers prevent real people, hurting people, desperate people, lost people, people who need a savior. If they don't believe the truth about the gospel, if they don't believe that you're saved by grace through faith, that you're giving them a different gospel and a false hope. 
does your religion matter? Jesus would answer, yes, it does matter. That souls are on the line and eternity is at stake. And so in verse 14, when it says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. Therefore, you will receive the greater condemnation. The verse doesn't appear in some ancient manuscripts, but it is contained in Mark chapter 12, verse 40. It is contained in Luke chapter 20, verse 47. So even if it was inserted later, it's still true. Remember the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus said in Matthew 5, 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The religious leaders would manipulate the mourners. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You devour widows' houses. These are women who are on their own. They're in mourning. They would manipulate them in their hour of crisis, in their hour of grief, and take advantage of them. John Corson writes, if you really want to, when a man died, the Pharisees would show up on their doorstep and say to the widow, if you really want to honor your husband's memory, make a donation to our ministry, unquote. That's part of the point that's happening. It's like the people on, on TV who are talking to, to poor little old ladies who are living on a fixed income or little old men who are fi living on a fixed income. And they look into the TV screen and they go, give me your best gift. God will give you a thousandfold return. It doesn't matter if their lights are being shut off or their gas is being shut off. They're taking advantage of people. Does this happen? Please donate to the memory of and then fill in the blank. And I'm not suggesting even for a moment that it's wrong to give to the church, that it's wrong to donate in the memory of a loved one. What is wrong is when the leader says, if you give to the church or you donate in the memory of a loved one, that you're going to have extra special blessings or you can buy your way into heaven. Nothing could be further from the truth. It's wrong. To manipulate a person in a time of emotional distress. Beware of fundraisers. Beware of bake sales. Beware of burrito sales. Beware of barbecue sales that manipulate rather than comfort. Now, don't get me wrong. Is it wrong to have a burrito sale? No. But imagine if my wife held up a sign that says, your ticket to heaven. Well, see, you're laughing because you get it. The religious leaders failed to mourn over sin. The religious leaders took advantage of people with the false promise of spiritual reward, making long prayers as if the length of the prayer is going to mean that you'll be heard by God. Paul told the people of Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 5, For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak for covetousness. God is my witness. Paul was saying, in effect, we didn't tell you what you wanted to hear in order to get stuff from you. We didn't say, look, we're, we're just going to say whatever's nice, whatever's pleasant, so that you'll give us stuff. My, my pastor hated what he called poor-mouthing. 
Chuck Smith despised pastors who would get up in front of a congregation and go, God, you know I've been wearing these shoes for the last 15 years. God knows I could use a new pair of shoes. Size 9D. In the hopes that someone would go, oh, the poor pastor. Oh, God, help him. You know, pastor, I have a pair of size 9 shoes that you can wear. Again, is it wrong to give to the church? No. Is it wrong to help people in need? No. None of that is wrong. What is wrong is using your position to manipulate people to give you stuff. That's what he's condemning. And then converting people, look at this in verse 15, converting people away from God in order to be like you. In verse 15, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel land and sea to win one proselyte. And when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourself. I would be reluctant to talk like that from the pulpit. The only reason why I'm even saying it is because there it is in the text. And some of you are reading it and you're going, what? Jesus talked like that? I thought Jesus, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, look upon this little child. He is angry. And in his anger, he's also telling the truth. A proselyte is a convert. So the religious leaders sought to convert people. Not to righteousness away from sin. Not being alienated to God and then reconciled to God. They were converting people from an outward badness to an inward goodness. Look, I just, I just want you to be a better person. I want you to be a stronger person, a more noble person, a person with integrity or whatever. But here is part of the point. They aren't converting them to the God of the Bible as he is revealed in the Bible. They're interested in converting people to their own legalistic, hypocritical system of religious rule keeping. Okay, what do I need to do to join your church? Well, you have to read my book and then you have to go door to door and you have to hand out these magazines and you have to do this and you have to do that and you have to do this and you have to do that. You know what the Bible says? You have to turn from your sin. You have to accept Christ as your Savior. You have to believe that He is the Lord. You can receive life and wholeness and wellness. And when a person tells you that it is Jesus plus anything else, they're lying to you. And so think about what is happening in the text. Jesus curses the religious leaders, not only for keeping people out of heaven, but then excluding them from genuine faith and then poisoning them with a false faith. Somebody might say, well, isn't it great that that person just left, let that person starve to death rather than poison them? Either way, you die. The Jews in the ancient world seldom sought converts but apparently in the first century, there was this kind of massive missionary movement that was taking place, particularly among the Pharisees. 
How in the ancient world, by the way, did a Gentile become a Jew? In the early church and in the first century, much of the New Testament is devoted to asking and answering the question, does a Gentile have to become a Jew in order to become a Christian? The first step in the ancient world, if you were a pagan or if you were a Gentile, the first step is you had to have a right understanding of the God of the scriptures. And so imagine you're a pagan Greek or you're a pagan Roman and you're growing up in a pagan world and all of a sudden you read about Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. You read that there's this self-existent, uncreated creator who created the heavens and the earth. And all of a sudden you begin to understand that whatever your wicked and perverse ideas about reality seem to fall apart under the truth as it's revealed in the Bible. So the first step was you had to have a right understanding of God as opposed to the polytheism and pagan concepts of God. This would include teaching about the nature of God and the attributes of God, the problem of the fall, the problem of redemption and reconciliation. So you would begin to understand the basic tenets of Judaism. The second step was that you would be circumcised. This was a permanent and irrevocable act whereby you would join you to God's people. So you can imagine, hey, I want to find out about God and I want to find out about Judaism. And they go, well, this and this and this. Hey, this all sounds great. Now what? Well, you have to be circumcised. What? What is that? Well, you have to do this and you have to do that and it's going to involve flesh and it's going to involve blood. Well, I don't know if I'm on board with that. It's like, remember the story of the all-you-can-eat breakfast where the chicken says, I'll donate eggs if you'll donate the bacon to the pig and the pig, <laughs> the pig goes, wait a minute. You only have to lay the egg. I have to sacrifice everything. And there's a sacrifice that was involved. And so many people were what were called God-fearers. They were willing to go to the synagogue. They were willing to participate in the rules, the regulations, the rituals, and the feasts. But in order to take that final step, that was a huge step. The Life Application Bible Commentary says, quote, unfortunately... Many of the Pharisees' converts were attracted to status and rule-keeping, not to God, unquote. And that's exactly right. They weren't interested in the, in the God of the Bible. There was just something attractive, exotic, about being a Pharisee. So what happens when you focus on religion and you focus on the rules, and you focus on the external observances. In the ancient world, like I said, it was hard for a pagan to convert to Judaism. There were two kinds of converts. One was called the proselyte at the gate. Those were the Gentiles who attended the services and worshipped the true God, but then there were the people who received circumcision. And this is why in the New Testament you have Jews following Paul wherever he goes saying, are you making sure that these Gentiles are being circumcised? 
Because if they're not circumcised, then they're not real Jews. And if they're not real Jews, they don't really have a right relationship with God. The most converted became the most perverted. And they said, oh, you think you're legalist. Oh, you think you're self-righteous. And you become twice the legalistic self-righteous convert. And that's what Jesus is condemning. The Pharisees preferred their own ideas about religion, to God's idea as it's revealed in the Bible. The false leaders and teachers elevated their ideas and opinions and preferences above what God said in his word. False leaders and teachers prefer their own ideas to the truth. False teachers and false leaders elevate ideas, opinions, above the word and so they substitute their ideas for God's word and they become barriers instead of bridges they become guides but guess what they are blind guides they don't see into the circumstances whether it's the LDS or Jehovah's Witnesses or Christian scientists Whatever the cult, whatever the false religion, they lead people into their own twisted system of perverse doctrine, not to Jesus, not to salvation, not to grace, not to hope. And this is exactly the point that Jesus is making. Jesus is accusing the Pharisees of being evil missionaries, evil ambassadors, representatives not of God but of Satan and so when we lead people to anything or anyone other than the God of the Bible other than the revelation of Jesus other than the gospel of hope other than the gospel of grace other than the cross we find ourselves participating in the Pharisees' sin. God, help us. God, help us that we don't misrepresent him or the, or the Jesus of the New Testament. And lastly, look, leading peop, God's people to follow human traditions instead of God's words. And verses 16 through 22, look what he says. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, Whoever swears by the temple, well, that's nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he's obliged to perform it. Fools and blind. When Jesus uses the word fools, he doesn't mean someone who's stupid. He's not talking about someone who has a lack of education or they're missing something upstairs. He's talking about someone who is void of judgment. For which is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gift that's on it, he's obliged to perform it. You may be having a hard time understanding, but what Jesus is talking about is the religious rituals and legal inclinations that the scribes and the Pharisees had because there were two kinds of promises. There were promises that you were free to break and there were promises that you had to keep. Let me help you. When I was a little kid, we would play a game. We, if you told someone a lie, it didn't matter how egregious the lie was. If you put your hands behind your back and you crossed your fingers like that, crossing your fingers, if you cross your fingers and you hold it behind your back, you can say the most outrageous lie 
And you don't have to own up to it because, well, your fingers are crossed behind your back. And remember when you were a kid, if you wanted to convince someone that you were willing to tell the truth, you would put your hands in front of you. And you would say, no, no, cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle. You know it. That means you're telling the truth. Because what you're saying is, if I'm lying, I hope I die. I hope I get killed. And if I'm lying, I'm giving you permission to take this needle and stick it in my eye. By the way, out of all of my times growing up, I never remember a single person getting the needle in the eye on purpose because they told a lie. But you, you begin to understand what, what, you're, what I'm talking about. We play the game, Erwin Lutzer said. God keeps score. The Pharisees are playing this elaborate game. Jesus accusing them of being blind guides, drawing attention to their dark, wicked, selfish, misunderstanding of God's nature and God's standards. The Bible says that God is a God of truth. God doesn't lie. Satan is the author of lies in John 8, 44. Satan is a skilled liar. And so spiritual leaders who don't really believe in Jesus or God or the gospel sometimes find themselves becoming skilled liars. The perversion and the distortion of truth is one of the hallmarks of Satan's followers. The religious leaders considered themselves to be the guides of the people. People who are trapped in darkness, in need of the light. The religious leaders considered themselves to be the correctors of those who were foolish. Those who were immature. They prided themselves on their superior religious knowledge, their professional training, their understanding, their leadership. And Jesus will expose their game. Religious Jews would swear by the temple was the ancient version of putting your hands behind your back. That you don't really have to keep your word. But if a person swore by the gold on the temple, they were obligated. If a person swore to a certain gift or money, they couldn't back out. It was their way of saying, cross my heart, hope, to die, stick a needle in my eye, but it, go, it went even beyond that. In that culture and society, if you made certain oaths or vows, it was enforceable by law, just like a contract. Or in our culture and society, every society, by the way, has a way of exacting truth. If you're at home or if you're on the used car sales lot and the person says, I'm telling you, I swear to God, there's nothing wrong with this car. When a person swears to God on the car lot, walk away. No, no, I swear on my children's lives. Do you have any children? Okay, I swear on my mother's grave. Is she dead? When people talk like that, you really can't trust what they're saying is true. In our culture and society, if you sign a contract, you have to fulfill the terms of the contract or suffer the consequences. If you raise your hand in a court of law and you say, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, and the bailiff is swearing you in, and there is the judge, there are legal, civil, and criminal 
penalties if you are caught lying to the court. And in that culture and society, there were oaths that you could take, that you could carefully break, and then there were oaths that you take that you could never break. And so what Jesus is doing is he's exposing the futility and failure on the part of the scribes and Pharisees who had given themselves permission to lie to the people in order to take advantage of them. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Jesus pronounces a blessing on those who long for purity and integrity and truth. Jesus says, I'm the way and the truth. The Holy Spirit is called the spirit of truth. The Bible says that God is a God who is not a man and he doesn't lie and there's no shadow of turning. And so Jesus pronounces a blessing for those who love the truth. And the Pharisees and the religious leaders weren't starving for the truth. But the people were starving for someone, for someone who would rightly represent God, would tell the truth about the gospel and the Bible. And the religious leaders would ignore the passages in the Bible that didn't suit them. On the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Don't swear. Or don't make promises at all. In Matthew 5.34 he said, But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it's God's throne, nor by earth, for it's his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because none of you can make one hair white or black. He said this before the invention of Clairol. Yes, some people can make their hair white or black, By the way, this is my real color. When I go to the barber, I just say, whatever you do, don't make me look like a former famous president. I would say, give me hair you can believe in. A godly person tells the truth. A simple yes or no will suffice. Jews in ancient times would swear an oath to give money to the work of the Lord. And when they did so, they would swear by the temple in case they changed their mind. And we play the same games. I promised, but I didn't swear. I gave my pledge, but I didn't give my word. Wait a minute. I gave my word, but I have no intention of honoring my word. Jesus exposes their little game. He exposes their faulty logic. He exposes the moral absurdity of what they're doing. On what logical basis did the religious leaders arrive at the conclusion that they could swear by lesser things and not have to honor their word? But if they swore by greater things, there was some sort of holy obligation. The bottom line, these men were using holy things. They were using holy words. They were using holy religious Language to mask their unholy lying. And that's what made it worse. Jesus exposes the folly of lying. When we lie, 
We become like the father of lies. We pervert the truth like Satan. We become co-conspirators in Satan's agenda to undermine the truth. C.S. Lewis wrote, a little lie is like a little pregnancy. It doesn't take long before everyone knows. D.L. Moody said, lying covers a multitude of sins temporarily. The Pharisees confused the outside for the inside. And we run the same risk when we care way more about appearances than we do about the reality of the condition of our heart. Jesus wants us to major in what is important and to minor in what is less important. We need help. Because some of us have embraced the legacy of the Pharisees. And so Jesus invites us to affirm what he affirms. The law requires what it can't give. And grace gives what it requires. God will give you exactly what you need. And what you need isn't more religion. What you need is an avalanche of grace in your life. Cleansing your heart. Saving your soul. Do you want to provoke God's anger? Do you want to be on the receiving end of condemnation and curse? It's easy to do. Just simply say, I'm fine the way I am. I don't need you. I don't need God. I don't need Jesus. I don't need grace. I don't need the gospel. I don't need any of that. And then refuse to believe the gospel, reject Christ, and then ridicule others who accept him. Make fun of the gospel. Antagonize, alienate Christians. And then teach your children that they're fine just the way that they are. That they've grown up in a certain religious tradition and that religious tradition will be sufficient for them. Don't enter the kingdom of heaven. Make sure others do not. Convert people away from God and then make sure they believe exactly like you do. And you will provoke God's anger. Or not. Or not. Admit that apart from Jesus, you don't have anything to offer God. Admit that the only thing that you have to give him is your sin. Admit that you do need a Savior. Admit that the gospel is true, that Jesus comes to die on a cross so that you don't have to go to hell, that God makes a gracious way. But the Pharisees reject Jesus. They'll reject his sacrifice and they'll reject his grace. The next time a person says to you, I believe everybody goes to heaven. I think it's okay for you to say, 
I understand and respect that that's what you believe. But what if I told you that Jesus didn't believe that at all? Would you be willing to maybe reconsider? I believe that I'm fine just the way that I am. How do you explain then that the Bible says that there's none righteous, no, not one, that all have fallen short, that everyone is in need of a Savior? And I'm going to guess that you're part of the group of people who includes everyone. Encourage people to enter the kingdom of God. Discourage them from going to hell. The chances of you doing that is slim unless you believe that there's a real heaven and a real hell. Now you understand what I said at the beginning. When you speak of heaven, your face should shine. And when you speak of hell, your regular face will do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we want so much to hear what you're saying and not just think that these words applied to a group of religious leaders, hypocrites, and scoundrels. Lord, we pray that you would press us in those most important areas where we ourselves become pharisaical where we love not what you love, where we hate not what you hate, where we become content to practice religion with no intention whatsoever of wondering how can my heart be different? How can my thinking be different? How can my life be different? How can I allow God to change me from the inside out? And so, Lord, we, by grace, through faith, accept the challenge that you would save us because of Jesus, that you would keep us because of Jesus, that you would provide for us everything that we need in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's.